you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 2, the Gospel of John chapter 2. And before we get in that, I wanted to give you just a little bit of understanding. We're going to be talking about the wedding at Cana. And as we look at the wedding in Cana, I think it's important for us to understand a little bit of background. First of all, N.T. Wright, the great uh, theologian of our day, maybe one of the greatest uh, conservative theologians of our day right now, uh, calls the wedding of Cana the first of the seven principal signs of Christ. Uh, there are other miracles, but in the Gospel of John, we'll see seven uh, that go into pretty high detail and description. And N.T. Wright will take the last two verses of John chapter 1, uh, as, as you see Jesus speaking there, as he kind of gives a little bit more information and insight, perhaps even prophecy into the understanding of who he is and what will happen as miracles are performed. N.T. Wright describes miracles as this. It's when heaven intersects earth. It's when God speaks in a special way here to us on earth. And when we experience these and when Jesus performed these miracles, they definitely portrayed His power, but they also told the story and gave the description of who He was, that He was the promised Messiah. He was the one that had been foretold throughout Scripture. The points of the signs are that they are the moments that heaven and earth intersect each other. The first being that of the wedding, of the wedding at Canaan, or Jesus turning the water to wine. The second will be in John chapter 4, when He heals the official son with just a word. And then in the third one was the healing of the paralyzed man in John chapter 5. The feeding of 5,000 in John chapter 6. Jesus walking on water in John chapter 6. Healing a man born blind in John chapter 9. And raising Lazarus from the dead in John 11. And then the ultimate miracle, the resurrection of Christ. The reason that we call Him Lord and Savior, because He was God in the flesh, but not just because He was God in the flesh and He walked here on earth, but because He died and because He was resurrected. That's why we serve Him. We proclaim Him as Lord. That's the difference between Jesus and any other man who's ever made any kind of proclamation. No other man can go back and say that they have conquered death, that they have conquered the grave. Now, it's also important for us to understand just a little bit of information about the Semitic wedding. In the Mishnah, which was basically a commentary for the Torah and some of the Old Testament writings, it told us, we can learn that weddings in that particular time, uh, particularly if you were a good Jew, you would, if you were a virgin, you would have your wedding on Wednesday. If you were a, wi- a widow, you'd have your wedding on Thursday. And what would occur would be that the, the groom would go to the bride's uh, house with his, so to speak, uh, groomsmen, and they would go at night and they would take a torch. And it helps you to understand a little bit more uh, the parable of the ten virgins when you hear this, or the ten bridesmaid. And they would go and they would receive the bride, and then they would take her and her attendants or her bridesmaids back to the house of the groom. And again, this was typically done at night because 
you could see the lights and everybody would know that uh, a wedding was about to take place or the process and the beginning of the wedding was beginning to evolve and to start. When they would get back to the groom's house, they would then have the banquet or uh, they may go through some ceremonial processes, but it, they would be, there would be a banquet and a party. And this may even last up to a week depending on uh, the amount of food and the amount of wine and the size of the pocketbook, quite frankly, uh, of the groom and of, and of the bridesmaid for that, or, or the bride as well. But in this particular instance, we see that Jesus is possibly, and we think this just because of what, he says, what Mary says to him, is possibly a friend or a relative of the groom. And as we look at this passage, we will see one of the first signs, one of the first miracles that Jesus will perform. It's also, I think, worth mentioning that there are several symbols and pictures that are used throughout the Old Testament Jesus is now going to redefine. He's going to redefine and, in a sense, uh, in some sense, even contrast the understanding of the Jewish people for several symbols and festivals. In John, John chapter 2 through 4, we'll see Jesus participating in a wedding. Now, this is a picture that's constantly seen throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. It was a time of rejoicing. It was a high time of celebration. We'll see even after this passage right here that Jesus will go in and cleanse the temple. And He's going to re redefine the temple as really Himself we'll see as we go throughout the book. He's going to give a new meaning and a new understanding of the temple that the people hadn't understood up to this point. Many of the, many of the so-called scholars and leaders had come to a place where their faith had consisted of tradition and following man-made rules. Jesus will redefine the temple and redefine religion. We see in John chapter 3, Jesus encounters a rabbi, Nicodemus. And of all the people of that society, of the Jewish sect at this time, the rabbis were probably one of the most highly esteemed, if not the most highly esteemed, because they knew the law. They were men who were educated and usually even well off. He has an encounter here with Nicodemus in which we receive our beloved John 3.16, which he redefines the understanding and the predominant teaching of Judaism at this point. And then we see him meeting a woman at the well at Samaria, which first of all was highly unkosher, but it was a well. We see the well used over and over and over again in the Old Testament. And now when the disciples and those who follow Christ closely think of a well, they'll remember it in a much different light. Chapters 5 through 10, we see many of the festivals reorganized, so to speak, or deconstructed in some ways. Everything from the Sabbath to the Passover to the tabernacles, even Hanukkah itself in some, some senses will be re-understood by those who follow Christ. There's a constant theme of replacement and fulfillment. Replacing the temple with the body of Christ. Replacing understanding the Sabbath and the Passover. Now we observe the Lord's Supper. 
He's going to fill them with the wine of His own life and revelation. And He's going to give a new picture of understanding eschatology or the great banquet. For the Jews, heaven looked like this. It looked like a great banquet in which there would be plenty of wine and all the food that you could ever want. And we see that picture given again in Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 through 9 that we read last week. Understanding that picture, let's begin in John chapter 2, looking at the wedding of Canaan. You'll see three principles, I believe, that are true for our wedding today and even true for us as we follow Christ. Three principles that we must understand and grasp in order to glorify God. Number one is we must invite Jesus into our lives. Number two, we must give Him control. And number three, we must obey. Chapter 2, verse 1, On the third day a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and His disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So we know that Jesus is uh, perhaps a relative, at least a close friend, for him and his mother both to be at this wedding and even some of the disciples. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Well, we see, first of all, that Jesus was invited to this wedding. There's a good principle for us to remember in our marriage, the importance of inviting Jesus into our marriage and into our lives. But number two, when there was a need, it was brought before Jesus. It's interesting, Mary the mother of Jesus comes and simply makes this statement. They have no more wine. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. Now that's an interesting response. Mom sees a need. She's probably either related, if not related, very close friends uh, with the party of the groom and perhaps even the bride. And she comes and she says, Jesus, got a need here. We're out of wine. Now, in our economy, that's probably not that big a deal. We'd say, drink some punch. Have some water. It might be good for you. Uh, that's not a big deal in our weddings today. But in this culture, it was a, a very big deal. If you didn't have anything else, you needed to have wine. Matter of fact, some scholars say that they could even bring litigation against you. Uh, those whom had prepared, who had given wine for you before, now you're supposed to be providing wine for them, uh, that you could even bring litigation against them. So it was a serious cultural circumstance for them. And it would have been highly embarrassing for the groom to have run out of wine as well as for the bride. And so Jesus' mother senses and understands what's going on, and she comes to Jesus because she is certain that he could probably do something about it. She doesn't say what, doesn't suggest exactly how he should do it, but she comes and says, there's no more wine. And then he says to her, dear woman, why do you involve me? What is this to me and to you is literally what the Greek says. Now that term woman, your translation might literally say woman, what does that have to do with me? It might say that, and you might think, that's a rude term, but it's actually the same term that Jesus uses in John chapter 19, verse 26, when He's on the cross, and He's speaking to His mother at that point, and He's speaking to John. So it's the same term that He uses there. And it's a polite term, it's a respectful term, but it is one also that's kind of 
distancing himself from her. Instead of saying mama, uh, he's saying dear lady or madam or however you want to describe it in our vernacular today. But it is a sign of respect. It is a sign of endearment. But it is different than calling her mother. He shows a distinguishable difference that now he is in the ministry of which God has placed him on this earth for. In his hour, the ultimate hour, which would be when he would give his life upon the cross, he is about to engage in a ministry that leads to that path. And he says, this is not exactly my time. You can't perpetuate this movement, perhaps, she's saying, he's saying, or you must understand, this is as I am guided by the Father. Whatever the case, he makes the reply. But then we also know he does the miracle. Because it says in verse 5, His mother then says to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Obey. He's got an invitation so far. He's been handed a need or presented with a need. And then the mother gives a good word of advice. Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing and holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now, these stone jars holding 20 to 30 gallons of water were not really used for wine, and they weren't even really used for drinking purposes. They were used for ceremonial cleansing. And they would have gone through multiple cleansings uh, for weddings, but they also did this even in everyday life. They would do it before they would eat, and it really wasn't even for hygiene. It was part of the ceremony that uh, the Pharisees had adopted from the Old Testament, and they were using. And Jesus comes in, and if you'll remember the picture we talked about how Jesus is redefining things, He takes these ceremonial uh, jars, these huge vats, so to speak, and he's going to use them for a different purpose. Up to this point, they've been filled with water for a ceremonial purposes, for cleansing. But he's going to fill them with wine. And what is wine the sign of? Well, it's the sign of joy and of life in the Old Testament. What is the sign in the New Testament? It's the sign, the picture of blood. They've been cleansed with ceremonial water. They will now be cleansed by his blood. Now, do they understand this? Absolutely not. But I think we begin to even see a picture at this point, a sign that points toward the reality of the cross. Incidentally, in 2004, some archaeologists found some uh, stone pots that were much like what Jesus describes. As a matter of fact, the archaeologists said this is probably what's being described, and it was near the area thought to be Cana at the time. So uh, this was something that was quite common. And he continues on here, and he says, uh, Jesus says right here, he says in verse 7, Fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. So the water had been used up to some extent, or actually just wasn't full, whatever the case may be. And then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Now what's interesting to me right here is that as the water is being pulled out and transformed to wine, the only people that really know what's going on are the people who are serving. So it's the servants and probably the disciples who are also participating uh, in this lesson, so to speak. So those who are receiving of the wine don't really know where it's come from. How do we know that? Well, it says right here in the next part in verse 9, "...they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine." 
He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Hey, there's a lesson right there for us. Those who serve often get the taste of the reality of the power of Jesus. It's when we are simply receiving and not giving, not serving and not sharing, that we miss what's going on around us. He continues on. It did not realize where it had come from. And then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, and this the bridegroom is the reason we would assume uh, that the groom was a, was a charge of the wine. He said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Let's go back to our picture of the new covenant. The old covenant has been established. And they have been living by the old covenant. The law of sacrifice and the law of continually having to offer a sacrifice and going through the ceremonies and even the dietetic ramifications. But now, here's another picture as we look ahead. What does the bridegroom say without even realizing it? He says, but you have saved the best till now. They indeed will find and will receive the best. They will receive the new covenant. And this, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee and thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. You know, I'm sure the disciples, when sometimes they doubted, they could always go back to that first miracle. If they had any doubt at this point, seeing the water turn to wine, and, and what's interesting, not just a little bit of wine, but we're talking about six huge jars that held anywhere from 20 to 40 gallons of water. So now all of a sudden, they have anywhere from 120 to 180 or 200 gallons of wine. It's more than enough. It's all that you will ever need. There's no need, regardless, even if this wedding goes a week like some, it will be plenty. And it is of the best. It is pure. It is vintage wine. You see the picture for us today? The picture that His blood is more than enough. It is enough to cover all those who will come. It is more than enough. Well, how does that affect me and my wedding and my marriage today? Well, as we gave those three principles, the principle first of inviting Jesus, secondly, the principle of giving Him all that we have, our needs and all that we have, and thirdly, obeying Him, I think we can see a picture for us right there. You know, I, I remember when we, when we first got married. And um, when I first married my wife, and we, uh, I determined, you know, this will be a good idea for us to do some things together. And so being the thoughtful and very intelligent husband I am, I said, honey, here's what we'll do is we're going to play some sports together. We'll play softball together. My wife said, do you remember we played softball before and that didn't go real well because you're a little bit too competitive. And, and she's right. That's what I did in my former life. I was a high school coach and I thought, well, you know what? What if we do one of these non-competitive leagues? How would that be for us? She goes, 
okay, we can do that. We'll do a non-competitive co-ed. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to go into this thinking we're going to lose every game and it doesn't matter. Okay, just I'm not even going to worry about it. This is just a fun thing to do with my wife. So sure enough, we get out there the first day and there's a bunch of us. It's a church non-competitive league. They throw us all out there. Matter of fact, I just signed up and I said, just put me with all the people that don't have a team. So I'm in the non-competitive team with the people that don't even want, uh, non-competitive people that don't even want on their team. Okay, so I'm in there and so I know we're not going to win anything. And so this is okay. So bring everybody in. There's about, you know, whatever. There's like 17, 18 people out there. And so I said, okay, well, I'll lead this thing. I don't even need to play. I'll just, I'll just coach. And so we uh, start writing everybody's name down, ask them where they'd play, and get to this one guy. And I notice he's wearing a polo shirt and a belt, walking short, and some boat shoes to play softball. Okay, whatever. Uh, let's call him Bob. Bob, what position do you want to play? Uh, he said, I'll play shortstop. I go, must be really good. I'm really good. Okay, Bob, you want to bat first, Mr. Really Good? And he goes, I'll bat first. All right. So we get out there, and he goes out there, and he's playing shortstop. And Bob doesn't even touch a ball. Balls are just kind of flying by, and he's kind of waving at him with his glove. And I'm thinking, Bob, you shouldn't tell people you're really good. But anyway, uh, so that, that's okay. It's non-competitive league, right? So then we get up. It's time to bat. And Bob's batting first because he told me he was really good. And so Bob gets up to bat. He hits the ball. He hits the ball to third base. See Bob run. Bob doesn't run. Bob's walking. Bob's walking. I'm coaching first. I'm going, come on, Bob. Let's go. Let's go. Bob's not. He's walking. He's coming. And I think, okay, Bob's not feeling well. Uh, the third baseman gets the ball because this is non-competitive league. She can't seem to get a handle on it. She bobbles it a few times and she throws it. It goes all the way to the pitcher. Then the pitcher gets the ball, throws it over the first baseman's head, and Bob makes it just in time because he's walking the whole time. I said, Bob. Your leg hurt or something? And you hurt yourself? He goes, no, these are new shoes. I don't want to get them dirty. I said, what? He goes, I have new shoes and I don't want to get them messed up. I just had to walk away for a moment at that time. And I know this is a non-competitive league, but I'm thinking, you've got to try. I can't, I can't do this. So I come back and I said, Bob, here's the deal. I know you've got some new shoes here. That's great. You need to take them off. I'm fine with that and run barefooted. But when they hit the ball, you're going to need to run, okay, because we're just all out here playing. I just need you to run to second base. Ball's hit. Bob begins to walk again. And I begin to not be non-competitive. I start to yell and scream, and I'm losing my mind at this point. My wife looks at me. I come over to her, and she goes, I thought we weren't going to be competitive. I thought we weren't going to yell. We made agreement about it. But he doesn't want to run because he doesn't want to get his shoes dirty. She goes, I don't care. And, and so I blew off steam, yelled for a while, and sat there. And, and, and I realized, number one, I'm, I'm highly competitive. But the other thing I, I realized was that I had a real hard time just focusing on what was best for my wife. See, she was embarrassed that I was yelling at this guy. I didn't even really know his name. I think I was calling him Bob. And uh, because I was so consumed with competition. And, you know, I would do that so many times early in our marriage. I'd, go, I'd do things like that. I'd go, honey, all right, let, let's, let's see who can finish this first. Like eating a hamburger or something. You know I mean? It was like ridiculous. Or I'd say, whoever, now, whoever can do this first, whoever wins this, gets to decide where we're going to do our next vacation. Can I tell you how poorly those things went over? This is one where like a lead balloon. My wife couldn't be less competitive. But you know what it was? It was a constant, and I constantly fight this to, even today, dealing with the temptation to have things my way, to do things my way, instead of dying to myself, instead of recognizing 
the importance of giving myself over to her and following through with what I've committed to her. I want us to look at a couple of things that we can do practically to help in our relationships with our marriage spiritually and just as a courtesy and as a, as a means of loving our spouses. Number one, and let me say this, I recognize some of you are in marriages where your spouse you feel like is not participating at all. They couldn't be further away from God, and it seems like they just don't even care. And let me say this, this message is for you, okay? It's not for you to go and say, you know what the pastor said you ought to be doing, okay? It starts with you, all right? And we're going to trust that God can change them and trust that God can do it. Uh, really, the truth of it is for us as men, in spite of us, but that God can do it as He uses us. Number one, pray for your spouse daily. Hopefully you can invite them to pray for you. That doesn't mean it has to be out loud, particularly if that's something they're uncomfortable with, but invite them, if they would, to take a moment to silently pray for you as you can commit to pray for them. Invite them to read something with you. That would be preferable if it could be Scripture or devotion, but maybe you may have to start at another place. Number three, invite them to attend church with you when you feel like it would be a good time for them to come. Number four, invite them to serve with you. Again, that may be in the church, but it may be in the community. It may be somewhere else. But as you serve and do things together, as you can, cannot, you can unite and do some things together. And then lastly, ask them to consider, to consider uh, being a part of your life spiritually. Ask them to consider being a part of your church. Ask them, hey, I'm just going to ask you to prayerfully consider something and to think about it. Invitations that we can give. Number th- two, give. Now, I want to give five things that wives can do. And husbands, really, this is a time you can just kind of tune out, okay? Because what I don't want you to do is taking this list and showing it to your wife. And wives, I don't want you to take the list I'm going to give you and show it to your husband and say, see what they said? That's what you're supposed to be doing? Okay, because you will have totally missed the whole point of this marriage if you do that, okay? So realize for just a moment, why, men, I'm going to talk to wives and this is really none of your business, okay? For just a moment, then I'm going to do the same thing with ladies. Number one, wives, give up on the perfect idea of marriage. Just give up that this is going to be perfect, you know, that music's going to be playing in the background and birds are going to sing and that your husband's always going to be sweet and romantic, that he's going to be always remember every, every important occasion, that uh, he's always going to be tender, he's always going to be encouraging. Just kind of give that up right now, okay? Let's just shoot that one and have a funeral for it, okay? And I'm not here to say that marriage shouldn't be a time of bliss and a time of happiness. There will be times and ebbs and flows, but recognize we live with sinful fallen men and women. And it's just not going to be perfect. And if you are latched on up here that things have to be a certain way, then it'll just be constantly frustrating. Okay? Remember, God is more concerned about making you holy than happy. And if you can only see the happy meter and that your husband's not doing it for you, you will be stuck in life. Okay? You will constantly be frustrated. So give up on the thought of having a perfect marriage. That's not to say that you can't have a good and a healthy marriage, but it will not be perfect. Number two, give up on the idea of changing your husband through nagging and criticism. You know, if I just keep hitting him over the head with it every day, one day he'll get it. 
If I just say, if I just criticize him enough, and if he'll realize what a knucklehead he is, then he'll just wake up one day. You know, that's really like me hitting my head against that wall. And the only thing that's really good about it is when I quit. Okay, I can pretty much tell you as men, we still are little boys with egos, and every time you cut our ego down, we just blow up, our ears clog up, and we just start thinking of, of, of additional reasons why we shouldn't respond through, to nagging and criticism. Recognize that nagging and criticism will not change your situation. Number three, give praise instead of seeking it. Now, should your husband be praising you? Yes, he should. But let me just say this. Quit waiting for him to give it and start giving him some praise. All right? We're, again, we're, we're little boys with big egos and big bodies. That's what, that's what we amount to. And we're like, look at me, look at me, see what I did, see what I did, feel my muscles. Remember uh, how we had that time before. That, that's just kind of the reality of where we are. And we need to be recognized. We're more willing and more likely to recognize you as you begin to recognize us. Number four, do some things that he enjoys. I play non-competitive softball. Do some things that he enjoys. What are some things that maybe you did before you married or when you first got married? Commit to doing one of those at least once a month with your husband. Number five, help him feel respected and honored. You may be saying, there's not a whole lot to respect and honor about my husband. You know what? I'm sure God Almighty could say that about us as followers of Christ. We're all just prodigal sons and daughters. The truth of it is, and you may have a prodigal husband, but the truth of it is you're probably a prodigal wife in a lot of ways. And there are some things about him that led you to marry him that probably are still true. You just may have to look a little harder and go back and research your memory banks a little bit. But begin to share some things that you respect about him. All right. Husbands and wives, these are not for you to use against him. All right. Number one, prioritize your relationship with your wife. Ask her, what it is, what is it, honey, that you would really like to do? What is something that would be very meaningful for you if I were to do this with you? What's one thing that we could do that would really, really mean a lot to you? And it might be something you can only do once a month. Let me say this also. You know, every year, couples, you ought to be doing something as just a couple and leaving your children at home or leaving them somewhere, okay? And I know, I know you may think... I know you may think, you know, it's really godly and biblical to always have all our children around. But, you know, if you're like me at the stage in our life, that, that's all well and good on the normal day. But I think one of the best gifts that you can give your children is for them to see that you love your husband and that their husband loves your wife. Okay? And when they see you going off, they'll wonder, what, why is mom and daddy going off? Yeah, that right there sends a message. So sometimes the most godly thing you can do for your children is spend time alone. Number two, talk and give reassurance to your wife. Your wife is going to constantly need to be encouraged and reassured that you love her. That old adage that, well, I told her when we married I loved her, and if anything changes, I'll let her know. Now, there's a sure recipe for disaster right there. Number three, learn to listen Without fixing. How many of us are guilty of that? I'll put both hands up, okay? I think I did it this morning before I left. And, I'll, you know, it's, it's just unbelievable uh, because we want to fix it, you know? I mean, that's my nature. My wife doesn't even get it all out of her mouth, and I'm going, I'll do this, do that, and don't do that anymore, okay? Right okay? Let's go back doing what we're doing. You know, and, and sometimes she just have to say, I don't want you to fix this. I want you to listen to me. Oh, 
And I almost have to stick my hand in my mouth because I have this incredible urge to give this profound prophetic utterance uh, that will change her life if she will only listen to me. And I've stopped and thought about it. Well, you should, you know, you've done this about a hundred times. It obviously isn't you giving instruction. Sometimes I think subconsciously women are just seeing if you'll just listen, period, uh, by sharing these things. It's the only way I can get you to engage here, so I'm going to share a problem with you. Let's see if you can listen then. Avoid criticism. Criticizing your wife will never transform your wife, it'll never make things better. And lastly, remember the dates. The dates like anniversaries, Mother's Day, Valentine's, birthday. And guys, for those of you who are a little bit slower mentally, when she says, oh, that's not a big deal to me, don't fall for that, okay? That's code for, how stupid is he? I'm going to tell him that's not a big deal and see if he thinks that's a, that I'm telling the truth. Okay, don't fall for that. Recognize go. what you need to do. Those are all marked on my calendar right now, okay? And um, it's just a really, really good idea because when we begin to, to forget those important times, and you may think it's not a big deal, but just that you remember, just that you remember that date and you can reflect upon it, says a lot to a lady about how you feel and how you honor and respect her and how meaningful she is to you. And the next and the last is obey Listen, now, what are we to obey? Well, let's turn to the probably the most famous chapter that deals with love of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul is actually writing to the Corinthian church and to fellow believers here on the importance of sharing and demonstrating love to one another. But as we discussed last week, I believe as Christ loves the church and gave Himself for us, so we as husbands and as wives can love each other and follow these same instructions. Look at verse 4. How are we commanded to love others and particularly love our spouses? Verse 4, love is patient. So I love when I'm patient. I love when I'm kind. I love when it's not envious or boastful or proud or rude. In other words, I'm not egotistical. I'm not letting my ego drive me. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. You have one of those lists that you bring up? Are you one of these people that keeps a list and brings it up when you fight? That's a pretty unloving thing to do. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in truth. And then verse 7. great verse for us as we love our spouse. A great verse for marriage. It always protects... It always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. In other words, it doesn't quit. It protects. Are you protecting your marriage? Are you being careful about what's coming into your home? Where you're spending your time? You trust and you hope. Are you in that place where you feel things are dead and there's no hope in your marriage? You know, Michael and Kathy Flores, Michael who leads our worship, can tell you about a time in their marriage where... They thought it was over. It separated. It was dead. There were no feelings left. Because some of these issues were not dealt with, it felt like there was nothing left and it could never be repaired. But through counsel and through committing their life 
Christ and their marriage to Christ and through time. Today they have a vibrant marriage. Matter of fact, they'll be teaching one of our marriage classes here in a couple weeks. Let me tell you this. If you're in that place where it's hard right now and you're losing hope and you're thinking it's dead, can I tell you, here's what it won't change if you just sit there. You just think, okay, there's nothing I can do. Then it, it probably will be in serious trouble. You will need to take some steps. And you may say, I've taken steps before. I've tried. He won't. She won't. Hey, let me tell you, this is about, first of all, loving God and recognizing that He wants to make you holy, that He wants to refine you in this process. And secondly, that God comes in and wants to recreate and make things that are dead alive, making old things new And it will only come by the miracle of God when we commit to do it. You know, there are three types of love found in Scripture. There's epithumia, which is the physical desire. And we know all about that. We see a world and a TV full of commercials that builds marriages and perpetuates a lifestyle of epithumia, strictly made on desire. Then there's another form of love called phileo, which is the friend-type love, the love that we grow in companionship. And I think it's important to feed both of those. But the type of love that's described in 1 Corinthians 13 is agape. And it's, I will love you regardless. I choose to love you. Just as God has chosen to love us, I choose to love you no matter. Okay? We could talk about boundaries and things of that nature but the essence of love where I make choices to serve, I make choices to sacrifice, is the essence of who God Himself is. That's what love is defined as. So until we choose to say, God, I will love you and I will love my spouse, I will choose to protect, I will choose to trust, I will choose to hope, and I will choose to persevere. We have not allowed God into our marriage. We are not obeying Him. We have not really given Him control. What about you this morning? Has there been a time where you've trusted God with all that you are and with your marriage, your salvation, with your spouse, your family? I invite you to do that today. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this time. Thank You that while we were yet sinners, You died for us. Lord, I thank You that You specialize in making old things new, bringing life from death. And Lord, for those who have experienced death in their lives through marriage, Lord, I pray that You would renew and strengthen them. For those, Father, who are still in marriages, but, Lord, where there seems there's little hope, I pray, God, that You would begin to work in those individuals and that they would commit to give themselves fully to You regardless of what the other spouse does or does not do. Lord, we thank You that You chose to love us. Lord, we want to choose to love You and choose to love our spouse that You've chosen us. Thank you for this time. In your name I pray. Amen.